Well, friend, if you have your Bible with you or one is handy, I invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 2. We're continuing on in our summer series. Don't miss this one where we examine some of the shortest books in all the Bible. And Titus, as you may know, is towards the very end of the New Testament, just before the book of Hebrews. In fact, a page or two before it. Our one sentence summary of this book is, Local church leadership is responsible for teaching by word and example that what we believe to be true will be faithfully demonstrated in our behavior. I'm going to say that one more time. What we believe to be true is going to be faithfully demonstrated in our behavior. Last week we saw Titus had been entrusted with a big responsibility, and that was to bring order to the churches on the island of Crete. And the first chapter focused on the role and responsibilities of the men who would lead the church as elders and how it should be apparent for everyone who knew these elders to see that each of them have a great love for Jesus, for His Word, and for His people. And I praise God to belong to a church like ours. We have four godly men who are faithfully serving Jesus and faithfully serving our church as elders and for all churches like ours that take God at His word by faithfully following His instructions. Uh, we have a big idea for this morning's message, and that's this. When we faithfully follow God's instructions, we both promote the gospel and hinder those who oppose it. Uh, I love being reminded of this. You know, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But we're saved for what? One of the privileges, opportunities we get is to live our lives in such a way we make the gospel attractive. As we're going to see, chapter 2 begins by contrasting Titus's role and the example that he was to set with the false teachers in Crete. And I'm going to have you back up just a verse so you can see what I'm talking about. If, if you look at verse 16 of chapter 1, concerning these false teachers, the Apostle Paul writes, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now we get to this weekend's passage and these specific instructions for Titus in verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, Paul writes to this young pastor, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And sound doctrine is accurate doctrine that's being lived out. And we're going to see again today, the Word of God is very clear to us, not only on what we are to believe as Christians, but also how we're to behave. Behave as blood-bought, born-again followers of Jesus. And that's because our beliefs and our behavior are inseparable. And that's part of why either Pastor Jeremy or myself stand up in this pulpit every weekend and preach to you out of this book, like Titus and all pastors after him, We've been tasked with helping those we shepherd live out the reality of what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has done in us, and what He intends to do through us and through all those who know Him as Lord and Savior. As I like to say from time to time, this book is actually our owner's manual. And if you take that word Bible apart, B-I-B-L-E, you could say it stands for Basic Instructions Before leaving earth, something that we need to be reminded of every once in a while. Again, last week we focused on a church's leadership, 
today for the most part we are going to turn our attention away from the, those who shepherd the church to pretty much every other adult in the church family. And the first part of chapter 2 contains teachings which explain how God wants us to relate to one another. First of all in our families, but then also, and just as importantly, within the church family. As we go through these instructions, I wouldn't be surprised if you started to wonder, well, this is so obvious. Why did Paul have to tell Titus to make sure this was being taught in and to the church? Well, there's a good, simple answer to that question. Most of the people in these churches who were receiving teaching from Titus were first-generation Christians. We are, at the date of this letter, only a little more than 30 years removed from Christ's death on the cross, from His burial, from His resurrection, and His ascension. And you know what that means? That means pretty much, especially the older men and the older women in this church, had missed out on one of the greatest blessings of all life. The blessing that many, if not most of us, enjoy and perhaps too often take for granted. You see, none of the senior center senior saints in these churches had the opportunity to grow up in a Christian family with a, a mom and a dad who both valued and esteemed Jesus above all else. And you might be thinking, well, Pastor, how do you know that? And as a good free church member, you could say, where stands it written, right? Well, look back to verse 12 of chapter 1. We get a vivid description of the values held by pretty much of all the residents of Crete before they had opportunity to hear and believe the gospel. Verse 12 says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Nothing positive in that description. Nothing happening in those homes that would prepare these men and women to lead their families well. And though few of you would probably describe your parents with similar words, the reality is not everyone who's listening to this message had a great experience growing up. Uh, I'm guessing some of you in fact might be carrying around hurts and disappointments from your growing up years that have perhaps kept you from becoming the kind of mom or dad that your children need, the kind of men and women our churches need. And friend, if I'm describing you, I do want you to be encouraged, all right? You can change, you can experience healing and wholeness because our God wants you to, and He in fact has already provided a way for you to break that generational cycle of sin through His Son Jesus and the very great and precious promises that are contained in this book. We need to not only hear His Word, and understand His Word, and believe His Word, God wants us as an act of our will to apply it, to obey it, and that's what we aim to do with His help today. No longer governed by feelings and emotions, but reminding ourselves to stand on the truth of God's Word. So let's look at these instructions God gives for our relationships at home and in the church. And we're going to see Paul organize this section of his letter with instructions specific both to a person's gender 
as well as their age and stage of life. And verse 2 begins with a reference to older men. Uh, so just how old is old? I think we found out today it's 58. But, but in reality, I like to ask people that question. When we talk about people being old, I say, how old is old? And, and uh, I get all kinds of funny answers, but the one I, I like probably more than anything is, is old is my age plus 10 years. In other words, it's, it's a moving target. At any rate, these instructions are to men in the second half of life. Men who either are or ought to be living their lives in light of eternity. Verse 2 again says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Now we're going to see this idea of of self-control being repeated two more times in this chapter. In part, being self-controlled means to be aware of, to monitor, and when necessary, to restrain your passions, your anger, your words. Uh, Sometimes a man can put so much emphasis on always needing to be right that he forgets how his words and his actions affect those around him. Words, you see, have consequences. And, And that's part of what I like the think method. Those five questions we can ask ourselves before we say something we might later regret. Each uh, beginning with uh, one letter out of the word think. T-H-I-N-K. T is it the truth. H is it helpful. I is it inspiring. N is it necessary. And K is it kind. And you know what? If I can't answer yes to all five of those, you know what I need to do? I need to ask Jesus to help me figure out how can I either say this differently or not even bring it up. Think method. Second half of verse 2. The older men are to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And this word sound means to be healthy. Okay, Older men are to be healthy in their faith, in their walk with Jesus. It, it means they're to be healthy when it comes to loving and also in being loved. And then... Also, this idea of steadfastness, healthy, sound, not wavering, not beginning to wander, but enduring to the end, whether that's the second coming of Jesus or the day on which your heart stops beating. However you want to say it, the older men in these churches, like the elders in these churches, were expected to finish well, not to get distracted from their role their responsibility as senior saints who, like it or not, often help set the spiritual temperature of a church. I say praise God for the senior saints in our congregation. We need you and we appreciate you. Next, Paul speaks to Titus about the older women. Older women, okay? So, same age and stage of life, just a different gender. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. The people who were hearing this word read to them had a picture in their mind when that word reverent was used. That meant how I would behave if I were going to the temple to worship. Besides being reverent, they are not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are 
to teach what is good. And church, you don't need to be a Sunday school teacher. To be an effective teacher, as we saw last Sunday, a good deal of teaching is caught as much as it's taught. It's seen, actually, in the example you set. In the margin of my study Bible, I've written these words next to verse 3. Minimum requirements for deaconesses. And they probably should be. Now we shift again at least part of our attention, generationally this time, to young women. And it says the older women in a church are to, verse 4, train the young women. They're to train them. And train means to give them wise counsel, good instruction in both how to behave and how to exercise good judgment. Okay, Older women are to train the younger women in what's to be the focus of their training. We see that in middle of verse 4. And it's simply this, how to love their husbands and children. As many other things that older women in the church could be doing and should be doing, according to Scripture, this is a priority. Okay, The older women in the church have been given the responsibility of encouraging the younger women, in a manner of speaking, to follow in their footsteps by becoming the mom her family needs. A mom who knows, again, how to love her children and her husband. It's kind of hard for us to imagine, but back in Bible times, couples were not always in love on their wedding day. But with God's help, they did grow to love each other after they were married. And you know why that was? Because back then, it was often the parents who arranged the marriage. In fact, still do in some parts of the world. <laughs> And you dads who perhaps are listening at home, there will be times you probably wish you had more of a say in who it is that your son or your daughter chooses to marry. And yet I'll say you can, by your example, teach, for instance, your daughter what she should expect from a godly, loving, and Christ-honoring husband. And you can do that by being that kind of husband to your wife, and that kind of father to your daughter and to her siblings. Anyway, in case you haven't caught this, important for us to hear. Titus, again, he's not the one in charge of teaching the younger women in these churches, and neither were the elders. It was, and it continues to be the responsibility of the older women. And like many of you, I see and appreciate the wisdom of that in all sorts of different ways. And I have to say also that having the older women train the young women to love their husbands and children might still be as important task for our generation as it was 2,000 years ago. And I say that because in many ways we are shaped more by our culture than we realize. Uh, watch any romantic comedy and you'll see that love is defined or sometimes even celebrated as a feeling, a feeling that relates to my personal happiness, rather than a choice to love, a choice to, to always act in the best interest of the one on the receiving end of my love. We need to be reminding ourselves of that, that love, yeah, there's feelings that come with it, but it's much, much more than a feeling. Uh, God's Word makes it unmistakably clear that love is also an action word, and 
And nobody's ever demonstrated love and action better than God. Remember what it says in Romans 5, verse 8? But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, most of you who've been married for any number of years know that not every day is a happy day, right? <laughs> there, are, there are times when you're going to be disappointed, discouraged, perhaps even unhappy. And yet on the day you got married, you made some promises. You made promises to God and you made promises to one another. And one of those was for better and for worse. You know, in, in the hardest seasons of our 36 years of marriage, I've been so grateful, so thankful for the wife that God has blessed me with. That, that I could walk and sometimes stumble and and even struggle through those difficult days. But knowing it was with my wife at my side and with Jesus always at the center of our relationship. Uh, she was taught well by her mom what it is to love her children and love her husband. And we're not going to go there this morning. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down if you want to go there later. But Ephesians chapter 5 tells us quite a bit about the marriage relationship and helps us understand how we are different as men and women. According to that section of the Word, there's one very important way for a wife to demonstrate love to her husband, and that's through her respect. And the flip side of that, as I mentioned last week, what a woman needs more than anything from her husband is the assurance that she's loved, that she is valued. Okay, Older women in a church... That's a big responsibility, teaching the younger women. And, and not just that, also, verse 5, to be self-controlled. Now, this is the second time we've heard this admonition. So self-control is necessary, not just in the older men, but also in the young women. Also, teach, teach them to be pure, working at home, which Proverbs 31 makes clear does not mean that a wife and a mom can't work outside the home. But these instructions are here to remind mom that her career should never come before her children. Okay? She is to be taught to be kind and submissive to her own husband. And, and that means allowing him to be the spiritual leader of their home, the leader that God has designed and in fact ordained for him to be. This word submission is probably one of the most difficult concepts for us to understand. At least it is in our culture here in the West. But I want to make this clear. It does not mean that one person is inferior or less important than another. In the body of Christ, we don't see God playing any favorites. Jesus loves all whom he has redeemed. But as the one who has ordained the family, Jesus has also given different roles, different responsibilities to men and to women. Just as he has in the church, just as exists in the Godhead. Where the Spirit brings glory to the Son and the Son brings glory to the Father. And then verse 5 gives us the incredibly important reason for all these instructions. That the Word of God may not be reviled, which 
sounds a lot like our big idea for this message. When, when we faithfully follow God's instructions, we both promote the gospel and hinder those who oppose it. And now we're going to switch genders again one last time. A word to the younger men in the church family. And verse 6 says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's our final reference to that character trait. And again, being self-controlled means to be aware of, to, to monitor, and when necessary, to restrain your passions, your anger, and your words. And, and you young men who might be listening or, here, or who are here today, uh, I want to ask you, do those words do a good job of describing you? And, and if you're not absolutely sure, there are some people pretty close to you whom you can ask. The people who live with you. The people who work with you. Uh, of course, it's always a good idea to ask the Lord. And then, you know what we need to do when He shows us those areas of our life that need to be changed? We need to agree with what He shows us. We need to be willing to repent and get back on course, going the right way, right away. These are instructions, again, for older men, older women, young women, and younger men. And Paul now briefly turns his attention back to Titus, and really to all of us who serve as pastors, again, speaking to him on the importance that he lives a life that's worthy of imitation. Verse 7, Titus is told, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Time of application. I just want you to think a little bit about your life. And if your life were a reality TV show, and I, I talked to some of the men in men's group, if there were theme music playing as you did everything you did in your life, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? But anyway, if, if we were to watch... A reality show based on your life, these last 168 hours, this last week, what would we discover? What would we learn about Jesus and His importance to you in your life? The extent of your love for Him. I'm wondering, would people watching that really reality TV show, would they really be blessed and impressed by the way you depend on the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life? I hope so. And, and in fact, I know for a lot of the people in our church family, they would. Because I've seen your faith in action, how you're seeking to honor Jesus in everything you do. But one thing I want to remind you of, something you, you know, but you don't like to think about. Not everybody who knows you are a Christian is rooting for you to do all. There are plenty of people in our world in fact, who would love to see you fail. So let me ask one more question here. Would those who despise the message of the cross find reason to doubt your commitment to Jesus if they watched any parts of that reality show? And would they be able to use what they learned to bring dishonor to the name of Christ?
we're spending a lot of time on this because the Word of God spends a lot of time on this, focusing on these issues because there's no better way to really live out your faith than in the context of your relationships. Jesus, in fact, said the defining mark for you as one of his followers is how you love him. Right? That's the defining mark of your relationship. Over the years, I have heard quite a few senior saints who I've talked to about this passage express their reluctance to teach or to train the next generation of moms and dads and in part, it's because they say, nobody ever taught me how to do it. They're, they're not sure. They think it's too risky. A uh, beautiful thing about God's Word is, He tells us here in chapter 2 how we can do it. The older generation is to invest in the lives of the younger members of their church family. It's up to us to put these words into action. And if you're in the second half of life, I want to encourage you and challenge you, in fact, to make that commitment today. Not only to finish well, but to help others in our church family become the men and women that God intends for them to be. Okay, verse 9, we're going to make a transition. Real briefly, from a believer's family life to his or her job, and, and I've entitled this section, a big reason why your work matters to God. Many of you are aware of this. Back in Bible times, as, as much as a third of the population of a major city uh, would likely be slaves. And, and the awesome thing is, is, as these slaves heard the gospel and came to faith in Christ, they were welcomed into the church family. And though none of us is a slave, at least to men, in these two verses we see some wise instruction for any and all of us who've ever had a job or who report to a boss. We see in this passage how our relationship with Jesus is expected to impact our behavior at work. Verse 9 says, Bond servants are to be submissive. Submissive to their own masters in everything. I'm going to change a couple of words in that sentence just so it makes more sense for us. Employees, let's say that, okay? Employees are to be submissive to their bosses in everything. So let me ask you, if you have a job, does that do a good job of describing you? They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. When we bring Jesus with us to work, when He shapes our attitudes and directs our actions, other people notice. Uh, Chris and I have a friend in our last church. Her name's Joyce, and, and Joyce had been a teacher, and there was downsizing in her school, and she lost her position, but she had it as her heart's desire. I want to teach. I want to teach. So she was looking for jobs. She was praying for jobs. She was beating the bushes trying to find a teaching job. And it went on week after week, month after month. There were no teaching jobs. Um, but she did know that in the next town, uh, McDonald's was hiring. And Joyce didn't feel gifted, called, excited about working at McDonald's, but she knew she needed a job. 
I think the Lord might have been prompting her, so she went and applied at that McDonald's, and they were excited to hire her, and they put her to work. And uh, as often happens, when we take a step of obedience, uh, God sometimes opens another opportunity. Uh, Joyce wasn't at the McDonald's even for a month before she got a job offer. Another school was, was looking at hiring, and they wanted to hire her. Well, what did that necessitate? Uh, Joyce had to put in her notice and tell her co-workers about her new job. And, and the cool thing is, again, how long was she at this job? A month. Uh, when she told her new friends, the people that she worked with, that she was going to be leaving, they actually cried. They were blessed to have her as part of their team. They could see Jesus in her life, in her actions. And, and the awesome thing is, when you and I follow God's instructions, we again both promote and even adorn the gospel, while at the same time hindering the efforts of those who oppose it. Okay, we're to the final section of this chapter, which includes a beautiful summary of the gospel. For the grace of God, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All people. Not just you and me and the other members of our church family. All people. People the world admires as well as those this world despises. People you'd love to have as a neighbor, as well as those you know ought to be in jail. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Salvation is a gift offered to those who are dead in their transgressions and enslaved to sin. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, again, for all people, including those who grew up in a Christian home but have long since run away from God. All people includes those floundering in what appears to be a sea of hopelessness, suffering perhaps on account of their own sins or perhaps the sins of others. All people includes addicts, those trying to drown away their sorrow and forget their shame. Church, we need to understand and believe that all people literally means all people. Hurting people. Angry people. Proud and self-reliant people. Hypocritical people. Funny people. Rude people. All people includes those who are incredibly rich, as well as those who hardly have anything. The gospel is for all people, including those who are bent and broken. We need to remind ourselves often that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, which until, like Mark shared a few minutes ago, until we've repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus 
and the finished work of the cross includes all of us, everyone, with a heartbeat. Everyone. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know who deserves God's grace? No one. And the incredible thing is we can't earn it either, but it's available as a gift to everyone who's humble enough to admit their sin and bring it to the cross. What else does God's grace do? Verse 12 tells us. It's training us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I love this about how God works and His grace active in our lives. The longer we walk with Him, the more His Spirit shapes us. So we better resemble our Savior. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. I'm going to invite you, wherever you're at right now, to bow with me as we pray. And we're going to let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts just a few minutes longer. Paul ended this chapter with one last instruction to Titus. He said to this pastor, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. He told this young pastor, let no one disregard you. He'd been entrusted with a, an incredible message, a huge responsibility. And, and each of us, again, whatever age and stage in life in a similar way, have been entrusted with a great privilege, a great responsibility. And, and Father, as we think about all we've learned today, we do want to pause and give you thanks and praise for the senior saints in our church family and for their example, for, for all those who have poured into our lives over these last years and for some of us these decades. We want to be like these older men and older women. We want to be living our lives in light of eternity. We want to see and understand the, the responsibility we have to invest in this next generation. And Father as we continue to follow Jesus, how good it is for us to know if they follow in our footsteps, they're not going to get off that path. Lord, some of us today need to be reminded that if others are willing to invest in us, we need to be teachable. We need to be humble enough to admit we don't know everything. Not only willing to learn, but eager to grow. We pray this morning for those who need to be set free from the hurts and the wounds of their past. We ask you, Lord, to break the generational cycle of sin that has affected so many of us. We pray that as we experience your healing and the wholeness that can only be ours in Christ and through Christ, that we will invite others to join us on this journey in freedom. That we proclaim the good news of your gospel to every one of the communities you have planted us in as members of this church. 
God, many of us listening today also need to be willing to repent. To repent of all the times we failed to bring Jesus with us to work. To repent of how our bad attitudes and disrespectful actions have actually given reason for our supervisors to doubt that we love you like we profess to love you. We don't know all the different ways that you're going to be working in response to our prayers, but Lord, we ask you today to come along those who who understand and realize that you want to help them. You're willing to help them. You'll give them the strength they need, even this day, to get from where they are to where you intend for them to be. That as a church family, we can continue stronger than ever to contend as one person for the faith of the gospel. And Lord, that as we faithfully follow your instructions, you use us both to promote the good news of your saving grace while hindering the efforts of all those who oppose it. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.